Thanks for tuning in to this special telemedicine edition of the DataPoint podcast. This episode is one of several leading up to the annual meeting of the American Telemedicine Association in New Orleans, Louisiana on April 14th through 16th. Check out the conference. I think you're going to want to be there. And if you don't believe me, these next several episodes are going to try and prove it to you. To some degree, the story of telemedicine over the last 10 years has been one of technology-driven innovation far outstripping our ability to reimburse or to regulate. Thankfully, that's beginning to change. Hello and welcome to DataPoint. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. This is the podcast where we talk about all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare. Today, we are grateful to have with us as a guest on the show, Nate Lachtman. Nate is the head of the telemedicine practice at Foley and Lardner, which is one of the leading telemedicine law practices in the world. Nate writes frequently on issues at the forefront of telehealth and is often quoted for his insight about legal and business developments in this area. He's written telehealth legislation, regulations, comments, and policy input to lawmakers, the DEA, the Congressional Research Service, state Medicaid agencies, and state boards of medicine across several states. He's helped write telemedicine policy letters and position statements with such organizations as the American Telemedicine Association and the American Heart Association. Nate is also going to be joining me and thousands of others at the American Telemedicine Association's annual meeting in New Orleans, April 14 through 16. If you're not already planning to go, I think you may want to check it out. Uh, And if you're not convinced, just take a listen to this conversation I had with Nate. I think it'll change your mind. Nate, thanks so much for being with us on DataPoint today. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was really interested in talking to you because I am certainly talking to lots of clinicians. I'm talking to data scientists. I'm talking to telecommunications experts, but I haven't talked to anybody uh, yet who is an expert in the legal and regulatory field as it relates to uh, telemedicine. And so I, I would love to hear a little bit about your background Um, just so we can give our listeners context on how you came to be a lawyer who is focused on telemedicine. Gosh, I guess most failed healthcare lawyers are wannabe doctors. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, to be fair, I was better at um, reading and writing than I was at science. When I was in law school, uh, the firm where I work at right now, Foley and Lardner, was my top choice. Uh, as a law student, mm-hmm. because it had a national presence and a phenomenal healthcare practice, and and that's what I knew I wanted to get involved into. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of different types of law that you can spend your time doing, and I I thought that if I wasn't going to be a healthcare provider myself, I could at least help move the needle, and I found it more personally rewarding uh, working in that industry. Mm-hmm. As I progressed throughout my years uh, doing different areas within healthcare, I found. Uh, uh, I found telemedicine, which was about nine nine years ago, I would say, when I first had my uh, first project on that, and I just loved it. I found it to be uh, obviously the technology to have incredible promise, but at the same time, there was a lot of confusion because you're not dealing with the law of one state to do mm-hmm. it right or harness the full potential. It's you know half the states or 50 states, and now the projects we're working wa- working on are transnational. So you're talking about multiple different countries' laws. Uh, because that's what the technology is conducive to. Accordingly, it was very complicated and uh, overwhelmingly so. Even for like you know some of the, our, our 
nations, household names of healthcare institutions. Mm. And I really found it rewarding to take very complicated things, turn them into something that's easy to understand, and work with companies and organizations to give them solutions so that they don't have to worry about like the legal, right, because we've got that covered. Instead, yes. they can focus on building out meaningful, scalable um, offerings for their healthcare services via virtual, as well as make sure they're sustainable and have good business sense. So that's really what I found most rewarding. And then while we certainly work with a ton of health systems and academic medical centers, I think our work focus has shifted to really excelling with entrepreneurs, um, health technology entrepreneurs who want to build something new, who want to do something different, and who see the potential here. Speaking to that difference, I think, and I think this is where you're going, Nate, the definition of telemedicine has changed so much over the last 10 years. And when you talk about you know, entrepreneurs and people bringing new technologies to bear, I'm guessing that it speaks to, you know, some of the things that, uh, some of the ways that telemedicine has changed. It's not just about, you know, a phone line anymore, right? That's true. There have been <laughs> papers written on the definition of telemedicine. Uh, to that, I would say, uh, a rose by any other name still smells as sweet. <laughs> States have also followed suit and have actually changed the way they define telemedicine or telehealth, whereas it might have been, hey, medical services via real-time audio video between a doctor in one place and a patient in another. Now they say, you know, the delivery of medical care or healthcare services via electronic communications, right? Okay. Which may or may not include remote patient monitoring, asynchronous audio video, because they, they are aware that by being too proscriptive in the definition, it will inhibit innovation and creativity and use cases. And that is really where the magic happens. It is not, oh, is this like a Skype equivalent? Oh, is this a messaging? And the magic happens in, what do I know about this disease state? What do I know about how healthcare is delivered today for those types of patients? And how can I use this technology to make it so much better? And I think some of these new wave of entrepreneurs are really embracing it because the technology itself has become so much cheaper. That's why we're seeing a democratization in the way healthcare is delivered, and you are no longer seeing it uh, that physician practices and hospital systems as the sole gatekeepers of who can deliver healthcare. It's changing things significantly. And tell me a little bit, and I know this is not specifically in the legal and regulatory field, but Clearly, advances in technology have made things possible that weren't necessarily possible before. But have you also seen changes in culture and society and the way that people expect to interact with each other, even around healthcare, that are driving some of these changes? We have. And, and I wouldn't say it's simply because of uh, telemedicine or virtual care. I, I think it's because of smartphones. We really, we're, we're, that, that just, uh, we're seeing that throughout. Uh, sectors of industries. What will happen, what is happening to healthcare is what is happening uh, to the banking industry, right? Banks used to have large uh, offices downtown where you could not just do your banking, but you could also get your trust in estates and wills and real estate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like then they switched to community banks, then they switched to ATMs. Now, I mean, who even wants to go to an ATM? Who even wants to go into a bank, right? And right. even the online banking has been replaced with companies like Venmo and PayPal, and it's just 
here, I'm going to pay you. And the, the actual method is all through the phone. Healthcare is the same way. So customers or patients or people, right, are way more comfortable now making significant transactions and exchanges simply through the internet with no face-to-face, right? And because they've sort of cut their teeth in the financial sector and now in consumerism and shopping like Amazon, eBay, whatnot, uh, they're getting more comfortable on the healthcare side. Simultaneously, the providers themselves, the doctors and, and the practitioners, are also getting more comfortable and skilled in delivering services in this manner. And I think it's really, it's been fascinating to see that. And I think um, there's been such an interesting interplay between the possible advances in technology to demand from the new age of customer to willingness of clinicians to adapt to this new model, you know, that the the fourth component that I see step fitting in there is the the regulatory environment. It has to have been really, really hard to keep up with all these changes from a regulatory perspective, yes? Yes, it, it is a challenge. Uh, for our team, you know, uh, I think we're the only law firm in the country, probably the world, with a dedicated telemedicine digital health industry team. There's about mm. 14 lawyers on it. And uh, that's all we do. So, yeah, we continually follow proposed regulations, bills, rule changes, and update all of our materials and resources. And it is a, it's a significant task. But if you do that, right, after you've read all 50 states, every statute, every regulation, every guidance on telemedicine and virtual care, what you see are patterns. You're able to have a vantage point for a meta-analysis, and you'll see how these states, in many regards, have copy-pasted each other, maybe mm-hmm. change one word here, one word there. And what it does, it makes those other otherwise gray areas or uh, you know, that you would see a lot less gray, and it yeah. lets you fill in the gaps and, and come up with solutions that would let um, a healthcare provider do uh, offer their services across multiple states in a homogenous business model and mm-hmm. still be compliant with all of those laws. It must have been, it must be um, extremely helpful for policymakers to have access to people with legal expertise who can help them to interpret some of these things. Is that something that you and your colleagues have engaged in, in terms of actually helping to shape the way that, uh, that legislation may go forward or, or policy may go forward? Yeah, and that's that's really uh, it's it's rewarding. It's very it's uh, the satisfying part of the job, right? Uh, so, for example, Connecticut uh, used to prohibit telemedicine prescribing of controlled substances, but they mm-hmm. recognized the uh, substance uh, uh, the crisis, opioid crisis, and substance use disorder and uh, psych- psychiatry really needs uh, Schedule Two and sometimes three controlled substances as part of care. So if you're going to require an in-person exam to prescribe a controlled substance, you really strip a lot of the value of telemedicine for access and convenience for patients who need those, right? And so um, we helped draft a legislation to change that law in Connecticut. And it passed, and the governor, governor Malloy signed it last summer. And so now Connecticut, uh, folks who live in Connecticut are now able to enjoy um, much more robust and meaningful telemedicine-based services for psychiatry and substance use disorder. That's a really interesting um, area of policy and legislation because it does feel like one of those places where every state has done things a little differently in terms of the way that they handle controlled substances. How do you see that going You know, at a state level and at, at a federal level? I think we're going to see more um, openness and acceptance of clinically valid 
telemedicine prescribing of controlled substances. No one wants to open the door to illegal drug diversion. No one wants um, opioid crisis 2.0, right? But at the same time, uh, regulators are more and more comfortable with this technology. We're seeing more clinical studies in use cases where it's been done safely uh, without drug diversion and without patient harm. And so I think they can feel confident leaning into that. Last year alone, 2018, I'd say at least six states reversed their prior bans on telemedicine controlled substance prescribing and now allow it. And the president signed into law last year provision requiring the DEA to promulgate uh, a special registration process allowing uh, doctors to prescribe controlled substances via telemedicine without an in-person exam. Those DEA regulations uh, are, are supposed to come out by October of this year, which will really be a, game, a long-awaited game changer uh, for psychiatry and substance use disorder professionals. Absolutely. Can, is, is it possible, and I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, so tell me if this is not a, a good place to go, but you, you mentioned two heavily loaded words, uh, clinically valid. Can you say a little bit more about what constitutes clinical validity in this context? Sure. I'm not a doc- Clearly, I'm not a doctor, right? So you need to defer uh, to the treating physician and, and professional standards of care. But what's essential to keep in mind is that any medical service, whether delivered via telemedicine or in person, must meet the standard of care. And there is not a different or lower standard of care for telemedicine. So if you're going to deliver a service via telemedicine, you as the professional, it's incumbent on you that you need to be confident that you can do this right. You can do this in accordance with the standard of care. Speak clinically valid. Actually, a simpler definition than I, than I might have expected because it, and it makes complete sense that you know, if you need to see a patient face-to-face in order to make a diagnosis and prescribe a treatment, then you need to see them face-to-face. Right. Simply because you're doing it via telemedicine does not give you a hall pass to do something that's unacceptable in the in-person environment. Interesting. What no one wants to see is a is a throwback or a, a resurgence of what was happened in the late 90s and early 2000s with internet prescribing uh, where there were just pill mills online and you filled out a couple questions, mostly what's your name, address, and credit card number, mm-hmm. and you could buy um, uh, opioids and, and other uh, drugs without any meaningful oversight. That's not clinically valid telemedicine. So I think that's probably the balance that some some regulators are, are they're remembering that. They don't want to open the door to that, but at the same time, they want to foster innovation, creativity, and new ways to deliver care more efficiently, uh, with better patient satisfaction, and at a lower cost. Yep. And and that completely makes sense. Um, We're going to take a quick break right now, but stick around because we're going to be back with Nate Lachtman from Foley and Lardner. We're going to be talking about some other interesting trends in the uh, policy and regulatory space relating to telemedicine. So stick around. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Spire, a full-service digital marketing agency focused on complex and highly regulated industries of healthcare, senior living, and financial services. Rapid changes in the healthcare industry are causing consumers to seek out trusted advice, demand more transparency and access to information and content. With over 30 years of healthcare experience, Blue Spire knows how to help you reach, communicate with, and gain trust from these consumers. We help you engage with the right content at every touchpoint. 
From the first symptom search to appointment scheduling through care management. Visit us at bluespiremarketing.com to learn how we can help you deliver relevant, engaging content through ever-changing touch points that matter. All right, we are back on Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. I'm here with Nate Lachtman from Foley and Lardner. We are talking about trends in telemedicine from a legal and regulatory and policy perspective. Um, Nate, one of the things that I'd love to talk about, it's been, uh, I guess, considered a roadblock for many years to you know, having full adoption of telemedicine solutions, and that's the subject of reimbursement. Um, can you tell us uh, what you see happening in the space, uh, in, in policy around reimbursement and where you see it going over the next year or two? Sure. So what we have seen is an, a significant increase or expansion of coverage of services delivered via telehealth or virtually, uh, almost unprecedented in these last three, I would even say three years. Ten years ago, almost no states required it, and there was very little coverage under Medicare or Medicaid programs. Mm-hmm. Now there's a multitude of opportunities. Thirty-six states have laws known as telehealth commercial insurance coverage laws, which uh, are intended to, uh, as a consumer rights uh, law, uh, to say that if your health insurance plan covers a service, uh, medical service, when delivered in person, you can also choose to have that service delivered via telemedicine, and the plan will cover it. It doesn't set any rates or reimbursement provisions, but it ensures that you as a covered patient member can enjoy that service either in person or via telehealth, which I think is important. We've seen more and more states pass those. Uh, Laws like that are pending right now, either new states that want to pass them or states that are revisiting their old laws and expanding them and making them more robust and meaningful. New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Utah, those uh, three come to mind. South Dakota, all have laws pending. Georgia, so there's a number of them, and I think we're going to continue to see more. On the federal side, with Medicare program and Medicaid, I think 49 state Medicaid programs have coverage of some type of telehealth, remote patient monitoring services, mm. and Medicare has really a lot of changes under Administrator Seema Verma this last year to significantly expand uh, covered services. They now cover have four different codes for remote patient monitoring, including a payment for the data and device itself. They have virtual care services. They have asynchronous uh, uh, image and recordings uh, reviews that's, that's covered. They have interprofessional consult codes. They're going to pay doctors to do peer-to-peer consults like curbsides and help each other out to actually get the right answer and better. Wow. A lot of these things are services that the government and really just medicine expected people to do because it's good medicine. Mm-hmm. The problem was doctors were so busy that they and they weren't getting paid for this these extra spaces in between that they didn't do them. Well, now they said, you know what? We're going to maybe reduce the payment rates we pay everybody overall by like a tenth of one percent or something, a half of a percent, Mm -hmm. and then create these new services to directly financially incentivize the behavior that we want to drive. I really applaud Verma and the uh, CMS for for those types of efforts. That's really exciting. And do you see, you know, at at least in in typical scenarios, when CMS comes forward with a uh, a positioning like that, a policy like that. Is that something that you will expect to see adopted on the commercial side as well? 
it, it's hard to predict. I would think sometimes, uh, certainly commercial plans, uh, follow suit for Medicare coverage. Mm-hmm. This is a little different virtual care. If you look at the, the, how the market has manifested itself by and large, unless a state has a meaningful telehealth commercial insurance coverage law on the books, the health plans in that state do not cover telehealth services. They just don't. They might in like, oh, three codes for behavioral health and they'll pay $10 a pop, right? But that's not meaningful coverage for real clarity and and understanding uh, from a patient or provider perspective. Um, and these are the same subsidiary, you know, state by state subsidiaries of national um, payers that in other states where they are required to do so, they cover it. So my um, my belief is that the states are going to have to pass these laws in order mm-hmm. to effectuate the desired change on the health plan side. Yeah, makes sense. I, I'm really curious too. Now that it feels like the reimbursement train has picked up enough steam that it's going to nothing's really going to stop it at this point. But one thing that I'm very curious about, and you mentioned it briefly, is the concept of remote patient monitoring. Um, That's something that certainly has been done, uh, you know, for patients that have special needs. But now that, um, that definition is expanding a bit as well, not just in terms of you know, having check-ins with patients remotely, but also with biosensors and, you know, in-home uh, health-related devices. Can you tell us what you see coming, um, you know, from a regulatory and policy perspective around that concept of remote patient monitoring and, you know, how how the data that it generates is going to be stored and used? There are all kinds of interesting issues that pop up around that. And I'm wondering if you could uh, give us sort of a, a sense of the landscape there. You know, what's interesting about uh, RPM is that it's an example where the technology, the equipment, right, uh, has outpaced uh, the reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So you have the equivalent of like uh, Ferraris or these like really fancy cars (laughs) that there's been no gasoline to drive them, right? So so I feel bad for the sales reps for these companies. They've had a very hard time pushing the product, right? But now with the changes in Medicare coverage, there will actually be reimbursement for doctors and patients to use the technology. We are going to see a significant resurgence and uptick in new and better product designs for remote patient monitoring. I think that the days of these like large clumsy suitcases or like really mm-hmm. boxy like harnesses, you know, those are gone. People don't want that. They don't want to wear it. They want something that looks really slick, that looks like a consumer-oriented wearable, um, sci- you know, straight sci-fi stuff. We're also seeing on the experimental uh, area, you know, uh, you had mentioned like patches, like, you know, an adhesive patch that has the uh, the sensors built into it and, and mm-hmm. Bluetooth Wi-Fi transmission. Uh, so all of those things together, anything that will be able to um, monitor uh, patient physiological data, right, yep. and whatever that particular data is, and then transmit it to remote physician and in the in-between, having a software that can crunch the data, dashboard it, at, dashboard it, and spit it out to the doctor as an actionable um, step, that's where, it's, that's where it's at. At the same time, we've seen the FDA over the last three years, and particularly the, the current um, commissioner, uh, Scott Gottlieb, really take a very pro-developer stance saying, we want to make this as easy for you, medical device and new digital health software as medical device developers, 
to build out compliant products that we can approve, right? And so yeah. they put out these great guides and interactive websites to try to try to say you don't need a whole bunch of lawyers and, and, and like uh, consultants, like just follow this advice. And if you follow it, then just do your job and make a great product. We're going to see a lot more of these products coming out that will be very slick. And then what they can do are things that you can't do in person, right? Even short of a truly inoperable medical record. Namely, you can much more easily share data by or among and between different providers mm -hmm. since it's already being done in an e-commerce or, or sort of a virtual setting. Mm -hmm. And then use that. And then for every new patient you get on, you add that data, de-identified or otherwise, typically de-identified unless there's been some permission or an exception, mm -hmm. and your database becomes more powerful. I mean, that's just the crux of any AI or machine learning kind of sure. concept. You have the algorithm, you feed it the good data, and the more patients you service, then the better the data becomes so that next patient is going to get even better care. That is the crux of how genetic counseling works on their databases. Right. We're going to see the same thing, whether it's COPD or whether it's like cardiac diseases or whether it's a specific condition. And as you scale that up, folks who may have otherwise rare diseases, right, and be much more uncommonly seen, they will have their own databases, albeit smaller ones, that they can tap into. That's the really exciting part, I think, is the back-end data that RPM can, can deliver, not just the front-end uh, technological conduit. Yes, you need that, but the big payoff is going to be later on. You're absolutely right. That is incredibly exciting. And to be honest with you, I could go on with this for hours because there's so much that we haven't even touched yet. But I'm going to close out just with, a, uh, uh, I guess, a, a plug um, both Nate and I are going to be at the American Telemedicine Association's annual meeting coming up here in New Orleans, uh, April 14th through 16th. And uh, I would definitely encourage those of you who are interested in this space and its evolution to consider coming down um, to check out the, uh, the presentation that Nate is going to make potentially be able to interact with them face-to-face -face, and, of course, with uh, hundreds of other folks who are doing incredibly innovative things here. Um, Nate, I am really grateful for you coming on the show, uh, sharing your time and your insights, and uh, I'm very, uh, very much looking forward to meeting you uh, in New Orleans. Yeah, thank you, Greg, for having me. It was a real pleasure, and I will see you in NOLA. You got it. Hey, one last thing before we go. If people do want to find out more about you and your work, what are some ways that they might be able to connect with you? I know that you're uh, on Twitter. Is that a place where uh, would, would people should uh, be checking you out? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter for uh, handles at Lactman. What I'd really encourage them to do is go to my blog, www.healthcarelawtoday.com. There are hundreds of articles on it uh, for healthcare law policy and business, including well over 100 on telemedicine and virtual care alone. And it's, uh, it's free and it's an educational resource that uh, a lot of people read because I see the SEO numbers on there and mm -hmm. they, it's designed to be a library so that if you don't know the answer, take a look there. It'll be in plain English and then hyperlinks to the primary sources. Oh, that is fantastic. I will make sure that we have links uh, to those places as well as to your bio uh, at Foley.com on our show notes. So uh, if you're listening in your car, don't forget to check out the show notes at uh, touchpoint.health. And uh, Nate, thank you again. We will see you soon. And to our listeners, come back next week because we're going to have more good stuff for you. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. 
If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.